O Lord, I will always sing of your constant love. I will proclaim your faithfulness forever. I know that your love will last for all time, that your faithfulness is as permanent as the sky. You said, I have made a covenant with the man I chose. I have promised my servant David, a descendant of yours will always be king. I will preserve your dynasty forever. The heavens sing of the wonderful things you do. The holy ones sing of your faithfulness, Lord. No one in heaven is like you. None of the heavenly beings is your equal. You are feared in the council of the holy ones, and all of them stand in awe of you. Lord God Almighty, none is as mighty as you. In all things you are faithful, O Lord. You rule over the powerful sea. You calm its angry waves. You crushed the monster Rahab and killed it. With your mighty strength you defeated your enemies. Heaven is yours, the earth also. You made the world and everything in it. You created the north and the south. Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon sing to you for joy. How powerful you are. How great is your strength. Your kingdom is founded on righteousness and justice. Love and faithfulness are shown in all that you do. How happy are the people who worship you with songs, who live in the light of your kindness. Because of you, they rejoice all day long and they praise you for your goodness. You give us great victories. In your love, you make us triumphant. You, O Lord, chose our protector. You, the holy God of Israel, gave us our king. In a vision long ago, you said to your faithful servants, I have given help to a famous soldier. I have given the throne to one I chose from the people. I have made my servant David king by anointing him with holy oil. Your strength will always be with him. Your power will make him strong. His enemies will never succeed against him. The wicked will not defeat him. I will crush his foes and kill everyone who hates him. I will love him and be loyal to him. I will make him always victorious. I will extend his kingdom from the Mediterranean to the river Euphrates. He will say to me, you are my father and my God. You are my protector and saviour. And I will make him my firstborn son, the greatest of all kings. And our next reading comes from Colossians. Where are we? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn son, superior to all created beings. For through him God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen, the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. Christ existed before all things, and in union with him, all things have their proper place. He is the head of his body, the church. 
He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. For it is by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both in earth and in heaven. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, pray that you would please add blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, without you, with your prompting and your spirit, each of us would be lost in darkness. We need you, Lord. Guide us into truth this morning. May our hearts feel um, the weight of this passage. May we, Lord, have a renewed perspective of who you are. May we walk away changed, equipped to serve you in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Before I start, I just want to say what a wonderful song that we sung before uh, Anita brought or read the word for us. Um, yeah, it's just an encouraging word uh, to hear through that song. Uh, so we are resuming our series in Colossians, um, and most of you who have been um, there with us um, have seen us read through uh, Paul's introduction. We've seen Paul's pastoral heart in his prayer for the Colossians, his prayer for them to grow in faith, hope, and love, um, for them to grow in the knowledge of God, in wisdom, um, his prayer for them to bear fruit, um, to be strengthened, endure, and give thanks. But what we come to uh, here in verse 15 is what I think is the center of Paul's theology, is thinking about God. It's the thing running underneath everything that he does, everything that he says and thinks. It's the fountainhead, in a, in a sense. It's the thing that he stands on um, that will allow him to speak words of correction, of exhortation to the Colossians. And it's important for us to stop and think about, um, not just because it's in the word, um, not just because we're reading through the book, um, but also because, like us, the way that Paul thinked, the way that Paul acted, uh, was a reflection of his view of God. Um, and so um, we need to be um, thinking about that. And so often, I think, um, in our waking moments, um, right from when we get up to when we go um, down to sleep, uh, I think we have such a small view of Christ. He's, he's so small compared to what we should be thinking about him in our minds. Um, I know that's probably true for you because it's definitely true for me. Um, and that's, I think, what makes it so amazing about when we read the Bible, we see people who are so enraptured with God, who are so in touch with him, who are such, in such awe of him. They fear him. 
Um, and it's the same with church history. Uh, saints who were persecuted and, and did great things, they all, um, it's almost as though they had a different God, or it looks that way. Um, but it's not that they had a different God, it's just that they knew our God better, um, which is an encouragement to us. And um, one other thing I was thinking of when preparing was um, in our church, we've been praying for revival um, among, among other things. And um, I think behind every revival is a, a big view of Christ, a strong view of Christ, a true view of Christ. Um, behind every fruitful church is the same. We can't view Christ in a small way and have a very fruitful church. Um, but it's not just the noticeable things, it's also the things that aren't so noticeable, um, more the, the hidden moments of faithfulness to God's word, um, hidden moments of sacrifice, uh, sac sacrificial love for each other, um, as well as repentance. Um, all those things come out of a, a big view of Christ, one that comes from his word and is grounded in that. So we'll start by reading... Uh, from verse 15, where Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Um, now, this is, we'll spend some time in this sentence because um, I think it's something of a thesis statement for, for Paul. Um, I don't know if you um, have, or if you remember, or if you were taught in, in English, I certainly was, that the first sentence of the paragraph, or every paragraph that you write, has to be. I think the other word is a topic sentence. It has to summarize everything else um, in, the, in the paragraph perfectly and everything has to link back to it. Um, and this is certainly a comprehensive statement of what Paul is trying to tell us. And um, before we get into it, um, the theme is, or the idea is that Christ is preeminent, that he's the sovereign and the first overall creation um we also talked a bit on this um, last week as well because the passages are very similar between hebrews 1 and colossians 1 um but i think that verses like this particularly um where there is so much um difference um, between interpretations we really need to make sure our, our interpretation is biblical um we have a, a biblical way and a framework of, of viewing this text um, because it's very easy to come at it from a from an experiential um, standpoint or a, maybe a natural standpoint might be another way of referring to it as might be where we come come to the text and say i know what an image is i know what a firstborn is um, and therefore i can i can conclusively say what i know christ is in relation to the invisible god and that is good um, because god has has, has made these things as part of creation for us to understand, but it only gets us so far because we are, um, after all, trying to understand an um, infinite God. He's an infinite God. So the first one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Um, now that might sound like Christ is something of a picture, um, the way a picture is to a landscape. Now, if I'm painting a landscape, it might look like a landscape, um, like a mountain with trees, a river, um, but it is not itself um, uh, a landscape. It, it is not tree, it is not river. Um, or 
um, in a similar way, it might look like a floor plan in a way that a floor plan is to a house. It has the same sort of image, but in, in its essence, it's very different. Um, but um, that's not the case. Um, firstly, we need to see uh, that Christ and the invisible God, we need to affirm that, that those two people are, are different people. Um, we're not trying to say that Christ is the invisible God in this sense. Um, we know that in John 6, Christ says that no one has seen the Father. We know that the Father is the invisible God. And in John 1, we have something that adds on to that, um, where John says no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Um, so how is, I think, how is the Son the image of the Father? Well, it is that he shares all the Father's attributes fully. And we talked about this last week. Sam talked about the character of God. Christ um, has the full character of God, all his divine attributes and power. He does not share a little bit of his holiness a little bit of his power, a little bit of his whole of his righteousness, his goodness, his love, but the full thing, so that we can see the full thing as best as we can as creatures. Um, being in the image of God, or being the image, I should say, um, shouldn't make us think of Christ as sort of a plastic model. Um, that's something of the real thing, but the cheap version of God or even the exalted version of man. Just to look at the full thrust of the biblical argument about Christ, we know that um, Christ in Hebrews is the exact imprint of God's nature. In the Gospels, Christ had dominion over the sea and the storms. He had the power to forgive sins. Um, he also said that he was before Abraham. In John, John says, that the word was God. Philippians says that Christ counted himself equal to God. And Romans calls Christ God over all. We know that Christ also receives worship in um, numerous places in the Bible. And if Jesus has said that no one has seen the Father, then who has Moses seen? The burning bush, for example. Christ is the revelation of God, the image of God that we have um, been given. So for Christ um, to be the image of God is for Christ to be the revelation of God, to be the full, um, the full demonstration of God with all his character and his attributes. Secondly, then he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, again, we have a similar issue. We think firstborn. And um, the term does mean the first person to be born. Um, but um, it, it does mean more than that in scripture. So if you could turn to Psalm 89, which is Anita's first reading, um, Psalm 89. We won't go through um, the whole psalm. Uh, again, Jeff will be very pleased to hear. Um, but we'll go through a few key parts um, that... Um, really pull out this theme uh, firstly verse three 
where the psalmist says, you have said, that is the Lord, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So the context of this psalm is the Lord's steadfast love um, in the context of establishing David's offspring. That's a, that's a theme that pops up at a few points. And before we get to um, the more messianic parts of the psalm as well, read also verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And when you've got Colossians 1 running through your head, you begin to make comparisons between the way that um, the psalmist exalts the Lord and the way that Paul exalts Christ in Colossians 1. So he rules the raging of the sea. We know that Christ holds all things together. Then in verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Again, Christ has created them and all things have been created for him, which means that he owns all things. Then we go to verse 20. Verse 20, um, David points forward to the Messiah. Um, saying, I have found, uh, sorry, I say David, I don't think David wrote this uh, psalm. I've found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. So this is where we yeah, begin properly to see, um, again, the covenant with David. And rather than referring to a sense of being born, it's referring to almost a commissioning where he's anointing David with oil. And he hasn't made David, he's found David. He's found David, his servant. Verse 27 is the last one that we'll look at. And it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Um, now, the NIV actually um, uh, translates this, I will appoint him the firstborn. And again, it's just a, a reference to God's uh, commissioning I suppose, or, or selecting of, of David. He's, he's making um, David his firstborn. Uh, now, the Greek word for firstborn that um, Paul would have been um, reading in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, is the word prototokos. Prototokos. So proto, would be familiar with that word first, and then uh, the rest would be born. And uh, this word in the Old Testament uh, does refer um, to the literal firstborn, uh, the first uh, one born, and in many genealogies, um, that word comes up. But there are a few other uses of the word, um, a few, not many, um, that refer to the firstborn as something separate from a firstborn, literal firstborn. Um, so if you can flick to, if you, have, if you can, Exodus chapter 4. Verse 22, I'll just read them out. Don't have to follow if you don't want to. Um, God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And if you go forward the other way to uh, Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 31, verse 9. He says, with weeping, they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water 
in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So both of those texts, in both of those texts, the Lord is referring to Israel as the firstborn. And we might think, oh, well, Israel was the first nation to be created, but I don't think so. Because Abraham was taken out of um, Babylon and the nation of Israel came, came from them. And so Israel is not the first created nation in a sense. And then the other text is Isaiah chapter 14, verse 30. Isaiah 14, verse 30. And this is a different use of the term, but it has the same uh, meaning well, for us. Isaiah says, and the firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy will lie down in safety. So the NIV translates that the poorest of the poor. So literally the, the way that the word is being used is just the first of something, the most of something. So we're getting the idea um, that, that this word firstborn is referring to something more of a position, something of a, the first, um, the proto, um, or a status in a sense, rather than literal birth. And so, if we come back to Colossians 1, we can read it this way. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the first, the proto, the number one of all creation. He is creation's king. All creation serves him. And so, he's the image. He's the one with all the attributes of God, and he is the firstborn, the one who is above everything, above everything. Then how does Paul seek to demonstrate this? Because he doesn't just leave it there, he keeps going. He keeps going, um, I think, in, in two ways that we'll look at this morning. The first is Christ as, um, as preeminent over this creation. And then secondly, um, Christ as preeminent over the new creation. So we'll start with the first creation, which is verses 16 and 17. I'll read verse 16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, we saw a similar thing in Hebrews when we uh, looked at um, well, when we listened to Sam's sermon last week, Paul is exhausting himself, trying to bring in all the possible options that there are available and layer them on top of each other so that we get the picture that Christ isn't created, that Christ has created everything. So he's not, not just creating all things um, full stop. It's all things on earth, not just all things on earth, but in heaven as well. And if that wasn't enough, then it's also visible and invisible in case that there's invisible things that, that are somehow um, outside of that realm. And then not only that, but in case that there were some other rulers that potentially could have created some things, then Christ, uh, Paul says that Christ created those as well. So it's everything. There's nothing that's left that Christ hasn't made. And if you think about it, that on a personal note, that means that we have no excuse for 
um, for forgetting that Christ has created all things, that we live in a world that Christ has made, that is that is for him. Every flower, every tree, every person, it all points to him. But then, uh, that's not all that Paul says. Paul says that Christ created all things and all things were created through him and for him and for him. All things were created for Christ. The point of, of everything, the point of the way that the world was created, the, the, the point of um, the way that the world is being governed right from beginning to end and the way that God will end all things is for Christ. It all points to him. He's the goal. He's not just the source. He's also the end of all things. Um, so if we if we think about that, that should really hit home in our hearts. Um, Edward Payson, who's a, I think a Puritan, uh, wrote this um, about all things being for him. The assertion that all things were created by him is sufficient proof of divinity. For he who built all things must be God. But when, in addition to this, we are assured that all things were created for him, we have proof of his divinity, which is, if possible, still more convincing. For supposing for a moment that God could and would employ a creature to perform the work of creation, can we suppose that he would permit that creature to, I'm sorry, giving can we suppose that he would permit that creature to create all things for himself for his own pleasure and glory surely not god has said i am jehovah that is my name and my glory i will not give to another but if christ be not god all the divine glory is given to another the glory of creating all things of upholding all things, of governing all things, of redeeming and judging the world is all given to Christ. If then Christ be not Jehovah, Jehovah's glory is all given to another and nothing remains to himself. Now, what does that mean? It means that Christ is God over all. All things were created for him. And it means also that he has a claim on you on each one of you. He created you for his glory. Um, it reminds me of, uh, of the catechism that Evie and I are uh, reading every, every evening um, after dinner, if she's listening. Um, there's uh, something like 130 questions that we go through. I ask an a question, she gives an answer. And um, the first three are, um, who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. It's for his own glory. And um, that has implications for our view of sin as well. I mean, if we, if we, we can't just view sin as a breaking of a written law. Well, we should. It is that. But it's more than that. Um, sin is not just don't do this or you did that but it's also 
failing to live for the one whom we've been made to live for. That, that's, that's the issue with this world. It's tumbling further and further down because it's not living for God. Um, it's forsaken the truth that God, that all things were made for him. If we are to obey this, we, we should live with a spirit that says, um, Christ made me. He sustains me. He gives life to me. He owns me. And he has told me what I ought, ought to do. Woe to me if I do not do it. Woe to me. So the question is, who, who are we living for? Are we living for Christ? Are all things that we do for him or are we doing things for ourselves? And then, if that was not enough, that all things are made for him, then also Christ is holding everything together. All he, uh, let's read verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's before all things. He was, pre, he was pre-existent, but also all things um, hold together in him. In union with him, I think was Anita's reading. Um, God doesn't create things like um, we would make a paper airplane and then throw it and then let it go. God has to sustain and keep sustaining what he's made. We are not self-sufficient. The world, the universe cannot keep going by itself. Um, I've heard Paul Washer say, you know, think about um, every tick of the clock. Every time that clock ticks, Christ has to sustain the, has to sustain the world again and again and again and again. And if he stopped, then we would all just vanish. And that would be it. But he doesn't. And the incredible thing is that he do, does this even to people who don't know him and who don't love him, who hate him, who scoff at him. He does this for the entire world again and again and again, over and over and over. And why? It's for his son. It's for his son, for his glory. So, and that, another thing, is that it makes um, the providence of God for us who know Christ seem so wonderful. Because we've, we've been thinking about Paul's prayers here in Colossians. And, and you can think, when, if, Paul's, if Paul's looking at the church without this in mind, he's seeing a church that, that, is, that is being trampled on, that is, being, that is suffering, um, that um, if it's not suffering right now, then it will in a few years, um, that has false teachers coming from without, imposters coming from within. Um, and Paul should be despairing, except for this one truth that above everything, Christ is holding it all together. And so um, the flock doesn't need to fear. It can take heart. Next is uh, verses 18 through 20, 18 through 20, which is Christ's preeminence over the new creation. So Paul doesn't just leave it there, as incredible as all that is. He moves on to the new creation. He focuses on a different thought. Um, I'll read verses 18 through 20. And he, again, Christ, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, what's Paul's point here? It means he's saying that when God establishes the new creation, the one who was the head of the old one is still going to be head over the new one. He's still going to be in charge when the new creation is brought in. Might make most sense if we start from the bottom up. So verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, this theme of reconciliation, um, all things one day are going to be reconciled back to God. At the point, at the current point, they're not all reconciled to God because of sin. Again, no one lives really for the glory of God. No one lives for him. Sin has spoiled things since Adam, and we are not in, we are not reconciled to him. Not all things are not reconciled to him, I should say. So it says, he will reconcile to himself all things. Does that mean that all things, all people, will be reconciled to him in a saving sense? Of course, it doesn't. Uh, Paul knows just as well as we know that in order to be truly reconciled to God, we must um, we must trust in Christ, the true Christ. We must repent and believe in him. But it does mean um, that absolutely everybody who is in the new creation will be there because they were reconciled to Christ. It means that no one in the new creation can point to anything, any other foundation any other pillar than Christ, and specifically the blood of Christ. We're pointing to the cross here. So all eyes in heaven will be on him. We'll be looking back to the cross, the glorious cross, where he purchased our salvation. And that's why in verse 18 previously, Paul says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, because we know that Christ didn't just die. He also came back to life. So all the church looks to him uh, for justification because he rose from the dead. This is the process of the new creation. All things must be made new. Those who live in the new creation must rise like he did. We read in First Corinthians 15. Uh, which was wonderful at communion. Uh, Paul makes it clear that we cannot be raised to life if Christ was not resurrected. His resurrection is the prototype of our resurrection. Proto. And um, I didn't have this in my notes, but Sam read uh, the verse that says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. So that's something to hold on to as well. Then he is the head of the body, the church. So again, all the church looks to him for justification, but not only that, for all matters of, of being sanctified, for sanctification. If we're to grow in Christ, which we must grow in Christ, then we must look to him. Um, he is the vine and we're the branches. That's whose body? It's Christ's body. Um, he not only gives our life, but our law. All matters of how we should do church, how we should do life, are all dictated by him. 
Um, and that means that he's not only um, he, he's not only the head of the church in the sense that he rules it, but he's also the head of the church in the sense that he's established it, that, that all things were established through his work. So if Christ is preeminent over uh, the new creation, it's, it's on account of the cross where he reconciled all things, um, becoming the head of the body, the church, um, where he was raised as the firstborn of the dead, the first fruits of the new creation. So the question is, are you going there? It's wonderful that we have some new people here today. Um, but the thing is, we don't know each other. Um, and it would be wrong for me not to share the gospel to you. Um, Paul knows um, in this passage that the world is dying. The world is um, sinful. Um, it's been corrupted and ruined. No one honors God as they ought to honor him. Um, they certainly haven't obeyed his law. Um, like we said, the whole trajectory of creation is wrong. It's in the wrong direction. Um, people live for themselves. And even many people in church, um, churches, just calling ourselves religious doesn't make us right with God either. Because um, many people in church would hear the true gospel or the character of God and, and still remain angry. Um, Paul knows that a day is coming when the world's sin, on account of our sin, on account of the, the debt that we are um, mounting up higher and higher and higher, one day God's going to say enough. He's going to call all things to himself. And at that point, he's going to judge all things. Each one of us, everybody in Armadale, everybody outside of Armadale, we're all going to sit in front of the judgment seat of Christ, both the living and the dead. And he's going to judge us according to our works. And the good thing is that if we believe in Christ, we know that Christ, who is the preeminent one, who is the one who existed before all time, before there was even a universe to inhabit or a body to be made into, he became a man in Bethlehem. And he not only came to live as one of us, to be made like one of us, but he also came to be tempted not only to be tempted, but to suffer, not only to suffer, but to die, not only to die, but to be crushed under the wrath of Almighty God, so that our sin and the penalty for our sin, which is the wrath of God, could be placed on him and his righteousness, his perfection, his goodness would be given to us. And that comes by faith in him union with Christ by believing in him and true repentance turning away from our sin. Now, if he was just a man to come back to Colossians, none of that would have worked. He could have been good. Um, but it says in verse 19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. I don't, don't remember where, but in the Psalms, it says no man can ransom his life for another. And so everything, it was everything that was needed to pay for our sin and more and more. Therefore, death could not hold him when he went to the cross, when he died and was crushed for our transgressions. But he came back to life on the third day. 
And as Romans 1 says, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection. So, what do we do? Firstly, we believe in him. We throw ourselves upon him and ask for his grace. But the main application as well, if we know Christ, is do we live with his preeminence? Do we live out his preeminence in our life? That's there, I think, in verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's also probably the heading of your paragraph. And what does that mean? Sometimes for us who believe in Christ, it will mean that we should be doing things that we do not want to do. Sometimes it will mean we should um, not do things that we want to do. Did I just double up there? Should, uh, yeah, okay. But it will always mean that we should be striving to align ourselves with God's will so that what we want to do is what we should do. And what we do not want to do is what he, or what we should not do. And that's by reading his word simply, by prayer, um, by fellowship with each other. Those things stir up our affections. They align us with Christ. And to come back to the introduction, um, to the way we started, um, we should have a big view of Christ. Line ourselves with the true view of who, who Christ is, and, and we won't have much trouble um, doing these things. So can we say that our lives are really directed by what God would want us to do? Are we really conscious in our hearts about whether a thing will please him? Have we really repented of things that we know really God isn't pleased with? We forget, I think, actually, that God um, does actually have a feeling about every single thing that we that we do. Um, when we when we go astray, when we do something that might seem a bit um, neutral, um, God does have a feeling about that. Is it good or is it bad? That should just be the thing that's on our minds. Are we striving to do what pleases him? And the thought of this is not meant to put any of us in bondage, but to simply remind us that God doesn't just go from angry before we were saved to neutral when we were saved, and now he's just neutral until Christ comes again. Um, do we desire to live for him? Because all things were created for him, for his glory. Uh, it's like what it said in the psalm, God is a God of steadfast love, but we just remember as well that he is a God greatly to be feared in the council of holy ones, that we would live with a fear of him, a true, right fear of him, um, while we are hidden in Christ at the same time. So God is, our Christ is not a small Christ. He's not a weak Christ. Um, let's pray Heavenly Father I pray that you would help us to cast ourselves on you by faith and trust in you Lord that 
we would look away from ourselves and look unto you. Christ, you are the pillar of everything that is good. You are the foundation of our very life. You hold us together. You've created us. All things are made for you. We are made for you. Lord, please keep us from living lives of selfishness um, because of which we deserve your wrath. Lord, I pray each one of us here would be born again if we are not already. Lord, that we would have a true and sincere desire to please you in everything. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.